I'm Jason Schreier. I'm Kirk Hamilton. And I'm Maddie Myers. And we're on a pirate ship. And you know what you have on pirate ships? You have cannons. And that's what we're talking about on <laughs> this episode. Right. Oh, my pow, God. Pow. Kirk, everyone who subscribes to Max Fun for our show just unsubscribed immediately. They <laughs> they're like, no, nope. demanded their money a back. A bridge too far. A pirate ship too far. The sole non-dads on the show are making dad jokes. Up is yep. down. Here we are. Left is yeah, right. The non-dad on the show is making a dad joke. Um, we're going to be talking about our favorite stuff on this Beans Talk episode of Triple Click. And if you're listening, that means... That you're a member, a Maximum Fun member, and also a member of our hearts because you support the creation of Triple Click, <laughs> which right. is a podcast that. That, that we love to make. So uh, mm-hmm. thanks for being here and thanks yes. for listening along. Yes. So, all right, Maddie, Jason, mm-hmm. you both already know what we're doing, but I'm going to explain it to you anyways like you don't know mm. because then listeners who aren't aware of what the concept of this episode is, will know what the concept is going to be. Does that sound good to both of you? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that breakdown. Thank you for explaining what a podcast is. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, how First explain works. a podcast, because I have had no idea. <laughs> so I'm going to perform some exposition now in the form of explaining our concept. So yes, personal canons. Um, everybody kind of has those pieces of media, those formative things, those great works that they love, that they think are kind of part of their their canon, like the, mm-hmm. the the sort of enshrined things that they love that will always be a part of their life that they think of as important or great for some reason. The three of us, of course, do because we are podcasters of refined tastes and <laughs> have made a career out of telling people about things that we like. And so yeah. here we are <laughs> Somehow, to, yeah. do, to do that even more. I will say I think the three of us have pretty good taste in things in general. I think that's pretty I fair mean, to say. I agree with you. <laughs> of course, we all think that. We all think <laughs> that what we like yes. is good and we're about to tell Mm -hmm. you about some good things yes Yes. so what we have done is before the recording this episode each of us picked one tv show one album one book one movie and one video game that we elevate to our personal canon just sort of not necessarily like we think it's the greatest of all time we do think that each of these things is great but more just like it's kind of defines us in some way it was important to us we think that it's fantastic and interesting to us in some way Mm -hmm. and we want to talk about why on a bonus episode of the podcast that we all make together (laughs) so that's what we're gonna do so not so not necessarily our favorite even just most correct the way that i made my picks at least was the thing that i think is most influential and most formative to my life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that is an interesting question that we'll get into a little bit more since the whole like what was most formative thing can kind of like lead me toward picking certain things more than other things. But mm-hmm. yes, that is that is a good way to think. Of yeah, it. this was tough. This was tough to yeah. do for each of these categories. Yeah. It's a good exercise. Which we will exercise, say though. over and over as we delineate what our picks were. We will all yes. say how hard it was. How grueling I think it would was. be interesting actually if there's a Beanscast channel on the Triple Click Discord and if people share their own personal canons. Yes, I can think for anybody to go and do this exercise is kind of fun just to justify yes. to yourself why you're picking one thing over another thing because there's going to be like five of each thing that you want to pick and it's like well which one do I pick like which is which is the the canon entry at least for this year maybe we'll update our canons and expand them next year but for now one apiece so mm-hmm. there's a lot to talk about let's get into it let's start with tv shows so we're gonna go Jason Kirk Maddie because that's the order that they're written down on this form <laughs> So that is a good the form the form says all the form yes. the form, I'm, I just I'm just following the we the didn't form. write it the form came nope. down from the sky and we it's just filled it out <laughs> yes we, we found it, it on golden plates buried in the earth and we dug yes. it up and we said oh it's the form okay look at that, look at that. Uh, so let's start with Jason Jason your canon tv show is yeah so this is not 
my favorite show ever, but is one of my favorites, and that show is The Simpsons. Um, yep. Pretty objectively, one of the greatest television shows ever. Usually not a surprise for you. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think many people who follow my work and have listened to me talk might think I would say The Sopranos here, but yeah, The Sopranos, I think, is my... Specific people might think that, like Maddie. Yeah, like think Maddie Myers. <laughs> um, the Sopranos, I think, is my favorite show ever and like the best show ever, in my opinion, but The Simpsons was way more influential on my life. And so The Simpsons is one of those shows where like, like I grew up watching it every Thursday night and then Sunday night, um, every new episode I would watch with my family. Like I would obsess about it with my friends. Like my friend Aton, who's still one of my closest friends, had every episode on VHS. So we would go to his house and like watch VHS tapes of them and they would all be recorded from the, sh- from the TV. So they would still have to those of you who aren't old enough to know like what a VCR and what VHS tapes are, you would, you would sit there and it would literally be recording a tape over as the show played. So you would see the commercials and everything sort of like the, the ancient version of DVR um, and like it was just very it was very much it was one of those shows that I would watch with my parents and our, our whole family so it was very much like a huge part of my life and and um, when I started when I was growing up watching it it was very much like the golden age of like the seasons two through ten like the the peak peak Simpsons as people like to call it um, and yeah I mean it's just hugely influential just made me like a lot of who I am today and like made like very much influenced my sense of humor and and shaped my sense of humor and to this day I'm still constantly just <laughs> throwing out Simpsons quotes um and group texts and such and uh yeah I mean it's <laughs> a, a a tentpole show everybody's seen an episode of the Simpsons so it's not something that requires much justification or explanation no but it is a great pick I mean it's a really interesting one it it's so undeniable because it's just been on the air for so long like it's been on the air forever it's such a long-running it's so show on, right but no one like, watches right. it anymore because it's not cool it's, now. it started it actually started the year i was born 1987 is when it wow. so, so it's, it's really your whole it's life. really my my um, life is like well that is unbelievable <laughs> yeah. unbelievable when you put it that way like holy yeah. shit well and then so a little bit of a fun fact is more recently i started watching some of the new episodes which yeah. like people shit on and have shit on for for ages because it pretty pretty clearly took a, a a dive in quality, but actually some of the new episodes are actually pretty good, <laughs> and I've been enjoying watching like new episodes too. So mm. it's not a show that is like unwatchable these days. It might not hit the same highs, although it's hard to it's hard to know like how much of that golden age stuff is nostalgia versus like um, it, it's so amazing today. Well, and just that it existed in an in a world that had not yet had the Simpsons in it for right. twenty thirty years. Like it it just is like a that's just a very different kind of a world. Yeah, I mean, you say that one episode I just watched, there's like a scene, they all have cell phones now in, in the modern Simpsons, and there's a scene where Homer texts a gif of himself backing into a bush oh, into the bushes <laughs> to oh one God. of his kids, like literally texting his own gif. And then your TV um, eats itself and like <laughs> your house collapses in on itself. God, man, there's an episode now, so back in the day they would do episodes that were flashbacks and Homer yeah. and Marge clearly grew up in like um, the 70s because um, they were in their 30s when the show started airing so they grew up in the 70s um and uh uh now they just announced they're making an episode where homer grows up in the 90s so he's like the same age 
Sure. <laughs> that wow. we are. Um, it's wild. That it's, is like some comic book justification right there. Like that is the type of stuff they do to justify how Magneto is still alive despite being mm-hmm. a Holocaust survivor. Is Homer going to be a clone of himself or something? Is that, <laughs> is that what they're going to do? No. Well, so the producer said, I saw some tweet about it, that the producer was like, none of the, there is no canon for The Simpsons because these Great. are all ridiculous stories that make Lovely. no sense. And they just, they just don't even Fair. That's a good approach probably. Sure. Um, <laughs> Why not? All right. Nice. So it's my turn. All right. My TV show is Avatar The Last Airbender. Great pick. Which I love this show, and of course it is my pick, so I think it is a good one. I did struggle with plenty of other shows that I love, in particular The Wire, which in some ways is the greatest show I've ever seen and is also maybe the most important to me, but it's important in a similar way to Avatar The Last Airbender, and I think that Avatar is like interesting in some other ways and also just has like an emotional connection for me like my dog's name is Appa I really love that show Emily and I also my partner Emily and I both love that show and we like share it and talk about it a lot so it has that going and so this is a great show for a number of reasons it's just a really good adventure it's a great story Um, it's a good show for people to watch with their kids my nieces have both watched it and love it so it's also something I have in common with them But I think that the reason that I love this show as much as I do is just that it's it is a great it's like a case study in finding more in something that seems simple at first and in the simplicity of good storytelling, like in how you can tell a good story in a very simple way and then just gradually build it into something exceptional. And it doesn't need to seem hard or like you need to do a lot of work or really, you know, like study it or pay close attention even. It just, when it's that good in this style of storytelling, which I think that Avatar is, it just accomplishes it almost, it doesn't need you to do anything other than watch it. And then just the closer you pay attention and the more you watch it and the more times you rewatch it, the more the more you appreciate how good it is, like how, how great some of these arcs are. Like, it's such a great show to rewatch. Anyone who's ever watched it and liked it, I recommend so much rewatching it. Like, there are arcs in the story that are really, really well told. Like Zuko's arc with his uncle is a great example of this, where it's it's very simple. It's like told in a way that kids can understand. But when you watch it with like a clear sense of where they're going and what they're doing with it, it winds up being this like extremely detailed and nuanced character arc for this, for this one character, really these two characters. And I think that that is just really special and really rare. I don't know if this show was planned out like that. I, I always kind of wonder about that whenever I rewatch this show. Like sometimes I feel like some of it may have been not on accident, but like they were just kind of going with it and like feeling it out. And then they started to realize like, oh shit, that'd work well if we did this. And by the end it was like, man, we really got a stew going here. Like this is a great story. (laughs) And like by the time they concluded it, it was just like, oh yeah, of course. Like we've somehow laid the tracks for this incredible conclusion to this huge thing we've been building for three seasons. And like, that is also a cool kind of magic to see happen. It's like the opposite of lost sort of (laughs) Um, yeah. And I, and yeah, so I think it's a special show. It's just beautiful and wonderful, and I love it. And and it uh, is also a show that I named my dog after. <laughs> cool. It's a great show. Yeah, I I really want to finish it one day. 
Yeah. You've never finished it? How are you? No, no I watch I watched like most of season one and my wife wasn't into it at all. So we just kind of season stopped, one but... starts slow, notoriously. So. Yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, it takes a little bit of sticking with I me. Mean, she also just doesn't want doesn't like cartoons. So mm-hmm. I'll have to watch it by myself. I like Jason that you and I both like Wade picking the super prestige HBO live action show and then instead picked, picked a cartoon. cartoon. <laughs> picked a cartoon. Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah. Maddie, what about you? What's your show? It's not a cartoon. I picked Murder, She Wrote, which is a procedural mystery An show. extremely good Angela pick. Lansbury. I love Murder, She Wrote. This was actually a very difficult category for me because, as people know, my family did not watch television, by and large. And so I did not grow up watching television. I have never seen almost all of The Simpsons. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Shocking to all of my friends in school and everyone I knew it as a child shocking. and an adult. Really sad, honestly. Um, so I... <laughs> yeah, I watched The Simpsons, but I didn't watch like every episode of The Simpsons. I've actually tried stretch. to watch it as an adult and and whatever. That could be a whole other show. But anyway, <laughs> Murder, She Wrote. I watched this show in my 20s during a period of time where I was like, it'd be good if I watched some television. And then I was like, oh, television's actually quite good. It turns out a lot of television <laughs> owns. Um, and this <laughs> was probably the first show that really made me think about the craft of TV and tropes a lot. It, it's probably the only example of like an elderly female character that I can think of as having the level of agency that Jessica Fletcher Mm -hmm. has, which I still never see in a show. And that's just something I like anyway. It's a show that is before the era of copaganda that we have now. So like the police are often bumbling and Jessica Fletcher's like the only Mm -hmm. person who can figure something out. She's not a professionally trained PI. She's a murder mystery writer who just happens to be very smart and enjoys researching things, which is a character trait that I think we can all relate to. Too. like as yes. writers like oh I just happened to read a lot of books about this so actually I can figure this out it's a total fantasy for a writer to watch this show of course and like imagine <laughs> that that in their retirement they would not only be writing mystery novels but also be solving mystery after mystery and just like outrunning the cops at every turn outrunning other PIs and just being super smart and unassuming aka prototypical serial <laughs> Yeah, yeah, kind of, but it's the thing about Murder, She Wrote that's very different, though, and that I still really love is that it's very cozy. Like, there's never blood. There's always a murder, but it's not about the murder and how grisly it is. It's about how the murder affects the people in that person's life and then what those people's motivations might be. And it's it's a very emotional show in that way. Like, Jessica Fletcher figures things out due to emotional intelligence as a skill as well. And that's just not really something I see procedurals doing now. Like, they're very analytical. I mean, I love Elementary. You know, there are plenty of procedural shows I love. I like Castle, which is sort of like a half-cocked adaptation of Murder, She Wrote that's like barely even that anymore. It's a gender-swapped version with Nathan Fillion. And those shows are fine. I enjoy them. But like Murder, She Wrote just does a lot with a little. And there are so many tropes in it that like as a budding writer, I would notice like it was during that period of time in the 80s and 90s of like, uh, you know, political correctness. So like any time a black character is on the show, they will not be the murderer without fail. Like mm-hmm. they will never have done it. Huh. They will always be implicated. J.B. Fletcher will have a moment to be like, actually, that was a racist assumption. This person didn't do it. Mm. And so like, if you are watching the show and you're like guessing along, also if there's an adorable young couple who's about to get married or just did, they didn't do it either. <laughs> like there's certain things that right. like the show has decided like all is right with the world. Like these are the rules of our world. And if you're a young couple in love, you get to be in love. If you are a person of color in this universe who's disadvantaged by society, you're a good person. Like it's like, it has all these certain <laughs> weird little rules that are like of its time, but 
I'm also very, very heartened by it. And, and I do recommend it as a, a Netflix uh, binge watch, as it were. Interesting. Yeah. It's got great theme music. And it's. Oh, yeah. Love I, the theme. I, I, we watched that show a lot when I was a little kid. We would my I think my parents just liked it and we would watch it. And I have these very fond memories of it, but I haven't watched much of it. Recently, I watched the episode where she like puts on a VR headset. There's yes. like a virtual reality. It's kind uh-huh. of classic among gamers. Yeah. Um, and that one's it's really so good. good. This is in the 90s, 90s VR. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very like. There are a couple looking. different video game themed episodes yeah. of the show. There's one, I think, where like somebody stole someone else's game code. I don't know. There's like <laughs> so many episodes of the show and they're all kind of the same, but they're all kind of great. Right. So right, yeah, it has a good a good formula, and it'd be interesting to watch it again. The whole like reimagining the procedural thing yeah. is kind of interesting. Like yeah, this, yeah, the idea that there are now shows trying to do that is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, that's TV shows. Let's uh, let's keep going, Jason. Uh, we are onto we are onto albums now. Mm. So this is impossible. <laughs> But we're gonna try. <laughs> we're gonna try anyway. So, uh, Jason, you're first. What's uh, what's your your canon album? Yeah, I actually found this pretty easy, easier All than right. the two YouTube musicians did. Um, <laughs> to me, the album that was most formative and influential on my life is Blink 182s and two of them really. Enema mm. of the State and Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, um, which is a pun that I enjoyed quite a bit as a teenager growing up. Um, <laughs> Both of those albums, I kind of see them as two kind of companion albums because they're both very similar and they're both kind of, there's even like like the first Enema of the State ends on a song called Anthem and Take Off Your Pants starts with a song called Anthem Part 2. But anyway, the reason that I'm into these is because not they weren't my first albums. My first album, I believe, was Green Day's Dookie, but they were the albums that really like set me on this path of like the type of music that I like even today, which is like mm-hmm. pop punk leading into punk, leading into ska, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and got me into like wanting to play the guitar, got me into just going to shows all the time. Like I was a kid going to punk shows and, um, moshing and whatnot. Um, and I wouldn't have discovered like a ton of great bands without getting started on kind of that like entry level pop punk music. Um, and I still dig both albums today. Like it's still, I still like the energy and the catchiness and I guess I'm kind of a sucker for catchy melodies and harmonies and stuff. And Who isn't? Yeah. 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 Um, but I don't have like, my taste in music is very simple. Like give me, give me the catchy stuff and I'll rock out to it. Like I don't need to be sitting there. Like I don't have a musician's mind for like a- analyzing complicated tunes and grooving out to stuff like that. Like I like the, I want the catchy stuff. Give me the catchy fast paced stuff and I'll sit there like cooking dinner to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I still listen to those albums today and I still listen to, I like new blink too, but, um, but those were definitely the most formative albums for me. Yeah, cool. this style of like super melodic warp tour punk, like pop punk, is super great. Like, there's a lot yeah. of good stuff there. It doesn't have to be. Well, it's not always like musically unsophisticated. Like, it isn't like those songs don't have. Yeah, it's hard to write those. Songs. No, I don't yeah, think it have is. Cool stuff going on. They, they yeah, certainly do. Definitely. Um, like writing a catchy hook is an art in and of itself mm-hmm. that not every band can do. Like, it's it's hard. And putting on a great show is also like true. not easy. There's Very a true. lot of great energy with this. Yeah. Guys. So Blink was also my first concert. Blink when I knew to and Green Day at Adorable. Jones Beach. That must have been fun. On yeah. Long Island. Yeah. It was very fun. But it was also my first. It was also like a seating concert, which is super weird now because like every concert I went, every show I went to after that was like standing room only, which is like sure, real. especially that kind of a band. Like scene. everybody. 
literally sitting down like, hmm, yes, please yeah. give me that. Give me that funky tempo. It was weird, but they were so popular because this was like, like they were on MTV as opposed to some of the other punk sure. stuff, which I would discover later. Like this led me to like, first it was like pop punk stuff like the Ataris and MXPX and Melon Cullen. And then I started getting into real punk, like Bad Religion and sure. No Effects. And well, I guess No Effects is kind of poppy too. But like, but then I, it just set, had, sent me down this road to the point where then I would start going into as like a teenager and then college kid, I would go into uh, Manhattan and like go see shows at like uh, uh, Hammerstein Ballroom or like uh, Irvine Plaza, like all these uh, all these like standing events. So it was that was just like the path, and that's why I call it the most formative album of my youth. But yeah, it was nice. fun times back in the day. Nice, that's a good pick. Um, all right, well I'll say mine. I want to. I this just makes me think of a thing. I saw. I, I'm never log on Twitter, but I did log in and just was looking at mentions and someone was complaining that i had called i think it was the music from um bowser's fury i had called it butt rock which is like <laughs> apparently a derogatory term for like nickelback pod like which i guess i kind of knew but it's funny because i wasn't using it in a derogatory way i was like i think i thought <laughs> yeah, that, that's not how that I music rocks it. i think of it as a kind of an ironic term anyways it just made me think <laughs> of that term and how apparently that is like seen by some people as like this very insulting thing like if you were into nickelback and that kind of you know kind of like it's sort of cheesy rock it's like but it's good like some mm-hmm. of it is good anyways i don't know i don't love nickelback but that was just a specific example anyways but rock to me at least does not necessarily mean a pejorative thing mm-hmm. so that's why you've chosen a nickelback album yeah this yeah so, so my pick is <laughs> <laughs> look at this photograph um, no it's pretty much the opposite of nickelback so i went back and forth between a million different albums and in the end i picked kind of blue by miles davis's uh, sextet mm-hmm. which is like the least surprising pick for me ever in some ways or for any jazz musician because it's so widely seen as the greatest jazz album of all time. But I picked it not just because it's like a great work of art, even though it is, um, but because it's an album that I've come back to many, many times over the course of my life. And I've had a different relationship with each time. And I've found it to be like the most rewarding, challenging and like ever changing recording that I've ever interacted with. So Kind of Blue was released in 1959, which is like the 2007 or 1998 in video games. Like, you know how there are those years where like Mm -hmm. everything comes out? 1959, if you go look at like the jazz albums that came out in 59, it's ridiculous. And um, this is one of them. Uh, And it's so it's Miles Davis, John Coltrane, tenor saxophone player, Cannonball Adderley on alto sax, Bill Evans on piano, and then Jimmy Cobb and Paul Chambers on bass and drums, um, or I guess on drums and bass in that order. And then Wynton Kelly plays on one tune. So anyone who knows, you probably heard of some of those people. Like it's like every person on the album is like a jazz legend on their own. And they were all playing as sidemen for Miles Davis. Of course, one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. And the album is like... There's a lot of technical musical reasons that it's important. It introduced this kind of jazz that removes a lot of harmony and like plays one chord for a super long time. It's called modal jazz. There is actually an episode of my other podcast, Strong Songs, about so what the opening track from this that where I like explain it. If anyone listening to this is interested in that and wants to know more, I won't get into the theory of it all right now. But it's basically like a style of jazz where they remove a whole lot of the structure and it's like, okay just play stuff like on this one chord for a while and then we'll go to it like another chord for a while play whatever you want and then we'll go back instead of like we're moving through this whole chord progression based on like a famous songbook song it's just like d minor ish you know see what happens and then all the players are like 
amazing and they're so good at improvising and they each have their own little voice and personality and so they all like go in different directions on each song and then every song is just this kind of big tapestry that they that they like play over um bill evans's liner notes he talks about suibo kugo which is this like japanese visual art where you have to like draw a steady line and you can't stop drawing it's like a very metaphorical very arty album for a long time when i was like a young jazz musician i didn't like this album though <laughs> like i thought it was just kind of like i like the fast stuff like big band stuff with lots of horns and like hits and figures and charts this is just like they were sketched on a piece of paper they just were like i don't know play stuff and so you really (laughs) have to get into like the jazz of it all like the real like improvising like we're just playing a scale and it's only cool because we're painting in these colors like it's very abstract and it took me a long time to get to where i liked it but the journey there and then a lot of that was like i've transcribed a bunch of the solos on this album like really learned them all but eventually I've just come to like have this relationship with it where every time I come back to it and listen to it, I hear new stuff and I'm like, geez, like now this is my favorite track. Now this is my favorite track. Like the last track, Flamenco Sketches, this really weird track. I love that track now. It's like one of my favorites. So it's just an amazing album that's like super rich, super full of like brilliant music and cool ideas that was challenging me for me for a long time. And that challenge and like overcoming it was such a like transformative long process that I'm kind of still undergoing. So I had to pick it because it's like, it is, it is the greatest jazz, jazz album of all time. Like there's a reason that people say that it's incredible. Good so, stuff. Yeah, kind of blue. It's a good album. If you enjoy listening to Kurt talk about jazz, go check out strong. Songs. <laughs> go check out cool the, podcast, those, yeah. the, uh, the cool strong show. songs episode. Um, I'm sure a lot of people already know it. Uh, Maddie. So how about you? What's your album canon pick? Okay, so mine is The Fragile by Nine Inch Nails, which is a two disc set. So I'm also kind of cheating Jason's style by picking this. Yeah, I think fine, if I had to pick one, I'd go with The Fragile Right, but I don't have to pick because no one cares. Um, so <laughs> this album came out in 1999. I was 13, I think, maybe 14 when I first listened to this. And I was, this was the era of time where in order to interact with an album, I basically had to put it into my CD player in my bedroom and just sit there and listen to the album. And I don't Mm -hmm. have this experience anymore. I wish I did in my life. I I should force myself to do this. You should. I do. I do the Kirk Hamilton thing sometimes where I listen to an album, I'll go for a walk. But back then, like I had a pretty crappy disc man, so I couldn't really listen to an album and go for a walk. I had crappy headphones and so on. So if I really wanted to listen to an album, I had to just sit in my bedroom and listen to the album. And I have these very strong like positive memories of just listening to this album and not doing anything else while listening to it other than listening to it. And this is a very textured, weird album. It's a lot of long, uh, purely instrumental industrial tracks where like there's tons and tons of layers of different instruments. There are also some like sort of more popular melodic tracks. Like I guess the great below is a weird one to shout out, but it, it is like a, a moving song that like could mm-hmm. be, was played on the radio at the time and like somewhat damaged is, is another one. It's not, it's not like a Nine Inch Nails album that has more of the hits that people think of. Like there's no, the perfect drug on here, but it's a lot more just deep, long industrial stuff and melodic stuff that I just was super into. And like you, Kirk, I was also, you know, playing a bunch of piano at the time and got really into trying to pick out some of the things that Trent Reznor was playing. He's a pianist. He plays a bunch of other instruments, but I was also just really fascinated by him as a musician. And I still am. I still, I don't currently sit down and listen to all of the fragile back to back, but in making this list, I was like, why don't I do that? When was the last time I did that? I should do that. And I, I don't think there's another album in my life that I had that strong of an experience with where I listened to it. And I was like, really getting something out of it emotionally and then also just 
thinking about what kind of music I wanted to make and what I wanted to do as a person. And just that album was that for me. And it still kind of is. It's been super cool to watch Trent Reznor like become more and more of the fact that he has made this transition with Atticus Ross into like film scoring and TV scoring. Well, the social network was amazing. And his Watchmen music was like so flipping good. Like, and um and also I I um it was a soul the Pixar movie have either of you seen that yes yet? yeah 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 one of the wildest it. things about that movie is that like <laughs> half of the movie is just like jazz the other half they're like when they're in the afterlife is this synth stuff that was done by Trent Reznor and Atticus I didn't even Ross. know that I was that's like, amazing yeah in the f- closing credits I saw it I was like wait what like it's just very <laughs> different frequency for them it's super cool he's yeah he's an incredible musician and I I love that album as well mm-hmm. it's great well. That's two down. We've got three left. So two down, uh, three to go. Two down, Woo. three to go. It's time to to canonize some books. These are uh, they're like video games, but they don't have graphics exactly. Like you just mm. you mm-hmm. hold them in your hand. And pre-orders are okay for books. We've, we've clarified. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. Okay the most important book. thing. <laughs> yes. So feel free to pre-order press reset, especially <laughs> non-fiction <laughs> video game journalism books. Yeah. Totally fine to pre to I should have made my canon pick um, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. What am I what was I thinking? Yeah, I know. All right, guys. so let's I'm disappointed in you let's both. do books. Jason, you're up. What is your book? Yeah, this is a tough one for me because there's so many friggin' books that it could be. I love books and yeah. try to read it um, all the time. And yeah, I mean there are a bazillion of the books this could be. I picked the one, not my favorite book ever, but the one that was most formative to me, I think, growing up, which is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Mm. And so Neil Gaiman used to be my favorite author. Still is definitely up there among among my favorites. And this was the first book of his that I discovered. It was also it also kind of blew me away. It introduced me to this world of like um uh, fiction that was set in the real world but like had magic in it and gods and religion and explored all these really fascinating ideas and told all these really interesting stories um, and yeah it was just like twists had twists and turns it helped that I think that the main character's name is Shadow which is the same as Final Fantasy 6 is one of the Final Fantasy 6 <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were going to go like, Shadow the Hedgehog on this but but sure yeah <laughs> no um, I don't think Shadow the Hedgehog had been invented when I when I read I'm this I'm just book. imagining Shadow the Hedgehog like <laughs> hanging out with all these gods and, starring like, in American adventure. Gods yeah. who's to say it's not Shadow the Hedgehog reread the book with that be. lens yes I guess that's fair. Um, And uh, yeah, it it just like, I think it just led me down a bunch of different reading paths that I really enjoyed, including like a bunch of Neil Gaiman's other stuff that I really dug. And um, yeah, I mean, I just really dug it. Did you me. um did you watch the American Gods TV show? No, I never did. I never really wanted to. I watched the first season, which is the Same. one people recommend you watch, and it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty good, and it was so weird how my experience of watching that show was it was great, and I haven't read the book, even what? though I, oh. I know. I know. And like watching the show, I was like, what am I doing? This is clearly an awesome book. Like I should just read the book instead. The book's pretty yeah, different, I, I actually. So I think mm-hmm. you'd be yeah. surprised. More just like this premise really lends itself to being a book than mm-hmm. like these specific events would be better if I were imagining them. But the show was cool. They had so many great actors. And then afterward, it just seemed like I wasn't paying close attention. But the narrative was just like, 
nothing but disaster after the first season. Like everybody departs the show. No actors are coming back. Like mm-hmm. everyone's over it. They're yeah, like, they were everyone's disavowing the show. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe right. There was like bad stuff on the set and like actors kept leaving. And I was like, Oh, that's too bad. Cause like, like Jillian Anderson was in that just yep. like totally rocking it. It was really cool. She mm-hmm. was a uh, media, right? The, yep. Yep. the God of media. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to read that book. Um, that's a cool pick, Gaiman, man. I got to read more Gaiman. Read some of his stuff, but not that much. Yeah, one one thing that I that it, it led me down the road of was like reading his short stories, and I actually, in retrospect, yeah. think that he's a better short story writer than he is big mm. novel he's writer. I've never read his comics. Stories. He's Yes, he's beloved for Sandman, his comic series, which yeah, I those never are read. sweet. Oh, I've read those. They're but, I mean, um, they're, they're crazy. But, they're really weird, but they're cool. Yeah, he has a book called Fragile Things. It's all short stories that has some incredible stuff, mm-hmm. and I really, really got into his short stories after American Gods, and I almost like them more than American Gods. But American Gods is very much like like one of my first mm-hmm. pieces of fiction that I like really fell in love with, and so on and so on. Nice. Yeah, I almost I debated whether we should do fiction and nonfiction for this only because like my pick is a nonfiction. But like, yeah, so there are so mine. many fiction books that are like super formative in the mm-hmm. way that you're talking about, Jason. Like, I mean, the books that I truly love in the deep parts of my heart are fi- are all fiction. But my pick is actually nonfiction. And it kind of dovetails with my album pick. It's a Miles Davis's autobiography, Miles from 1989, just because, again, this is a book that was just very formative for me and super important. It's the kind of thing I never would have read if I hadn't been a little like 15 year old jazz nerd who just like, I think a private (laughs) teacher of mine was like, you have to read this book if you're going to be a jazz musician. Like you have to understand where the music comes from and like the stories of all these people who invented it 60 years ago. And, um, and then I read it and it was like, that book rules, first of all, like everybody should read it. It's just a really entertaining book because Miles Davis is like, I don't know if he's the most um, reliable narrator of his own life. Like, you know, so Miles Davis is a, a famous bastard, I would say. Like, he is, he was not a nice person. And that's for a lot of different reasons, but he was not like a nice dude or an easy person to work with. Um, he was very much the like kind of complicated, ab- abusive genius type. And his own. He would get telling... canceled today, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's safe to say that Miles Davis would be would be canceled on Twitter. I don't think he would give a shit, but that would happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so you, I would love to read it again. I haven't in a long time, and I'm sure there are things in it now that would strike me very differently, only because like the behavior of men and the things that were permitted, particularly by musicians, um, throughout the you know he he was through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. He was kind of at the forefront, and he was a superstar for a lot of that time. Um, I, you know, it's I would view it differently now than I did when I read it when I was you know 16 or whatever when I first read it, but as a portrait of the history of really American music. I mean, it is jazz, but it's like black American music, just generally speaking. And he was at the vanguard of so much of it. I mean, from like, he like led every stylistic shift through jazz, just one guy, like from like seven different shifts from like the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, even into the eighties. It was like each time there was a major like revolution in jazz, Miles Davis like had as an album. That's like the quintessential one. So it's this one guy. And then he played with everybody more like the quintet central one <laughs> yes yes so there is a jazz group called the quintet and dizzy gillespie played trumpet not miles davis so um mm-hmm. he actually wasn't in the quint the quintessential quintet um but uh it's the book is like a lot of shit talking and a lot of gossip it's like it's not like it is about the art it's 
it would be great to listen to the albums along with it while you read it, but it's not him being like, and then I decided that modal jazz would be interesting if we stayed on one chord for a long time and we recorded kind of blue. Like, it's not like that. It's way more like, man, Coltrane was like such a lazy piece of shit and he was always high <laughs> and I fired that fucker. Like, it's just like, it's the most like profane book. He's just, he uses the word fuck like and motherfucker in ways that I'd never heard before or since. Like, it is just this really just intense historical like kind of whirlwind tour through this one guy's life or his memories of his life and just as that like as this like portrait of this one person who is a super important musician's life it's really interesting and it also just is like a front row seat to the whole history of jazz and makes jazz interesting in a way that i think a lot of times like even eggheads like me talking about it or how cool improvisation is or whatever that's not like that's such a small part of it like that's not the real history of it and the people who invented this music out of a whole cloth who are just like living you know in new york and kind of playing together and sort of scraping to get by and dealing with like a super racist country and like people who were totally not interested in their music and like cops that were just cracking down on them all the time and trying to keep them from playing, just like making this incredible art form up all the real life stuff that happened when that was happening is fascinating. And this is his story of like his journey through that. So it's a great book. And it just gave me this like human perspective on the music that I was learning that I think was super important for me at that time and still kind of is. So this is a great book, Miles, Miles cool. Davis, Quincy Trope, 1989. Worth a read. Cool. Uh, Maddie, your uh, your book, what is it? Okay. So this is also a nonfiction book. It's called Bird by Bird, and it's by Anne Lamott. And this is a writing advice book that my parents bought for me at some point in my teen years, I think just because they started just buying me writing advice books because they were like, I don't, I don't know. She's got to get help somehow. Seems like she's, she's got to get better somehow. <laughs> so I I loved this book. I've read and reread it many times throughout my life. It is kind of a book about how to write, but it's mostly emotional advice about if you're a writer who's deeply insecure, which I would say that Anne Lamott very freely admits. There's chapters <laughs> where she talks about being jealous of other writers and being like a petty person and working nice, through that nice, that are nice. like very relatable to, I think, yeah. most writers who have those dark thoughts. Yeah, and she talks any about writers like, who aren't insecure. <laughs> hearing about somebody else's success and just inwardly cursing them and being like, why can't I get anything done? Like, it's a very That's evocative funny. book. There are a lot of like angry parts, but then there's also some very practical advice. Like the title of the book is a reference to uh, this moment when I, I think I'm think I'm remembering this anecdote correctly, but I haven't reread the book recently. I believe it's her son who's doing a school project where it's it's getting to the last minute and he was supposed to do the school project about birds. And he has this breakdown to his parents and is like, I just don't see how I'm ever going to do it. And then his parents are like, well, we're just going to take it bird by bird. And like, that's how you approach everything in life in, in theory. Like, even if you feel extremely overwhelmed by some massive undertaking or book or album, whatever yeah. you're working on, like, it's really just a series of tiny tasks that you're doing in a row. And a lot of her advice is that way. It also rhymes with word by word. It does. <laughs> it does, which is good because words are what you write with. And that's right. that's also part of it. That's what they say. <laughs> but so, so the other, there's like one final anecdote about this book where like so a few years ago Anne Lamott said some transphobic stuff about Caitlyn Jenner and I was really heartbroken by it at the time because I've read this book so many times and I wasn't going to pick this book because I was like well I 
remembered what no, she no. said and the Harry Potter. Yeah, dilemma. I mean, it, it's it's just people say people out themselves as transphobes sometimes, and I just I I find it really harmful. I mean, it's harmful to all queer people and whatever. So I I looked into this and I was like, did I remember this correctly? Did this happen? And it turns out that her son actually called her out on Twitter at the time and like wrote a bunch of tweets that were like, mom, we really need to talk about this. And people can look up his tweets because a lot of them are very artfully done. And then they had a conversation offline and she came back and wrote an apology for what she'd said and was like, I, you know, have learned a lot. And my son has taught me this, this new information that I didn't know. And like, helpful information to me. And like, I would never have known that. And I I think it's also just this weird truism of internet life that like you have this memory of somebody doing something terrible, but then you have no occasion to follow up. Like the headline is of course, Mm -hmm. like in Lamont transphobic comments. And like, even if you Google it now, you can find a million articles about that. But like, it was actually kind of hard for me to find the article about this follow-up that she did where she apologized and I don't know. It was just an interesting moment for me where I was like, okay, like people can learn. And this person who taught me a lot and was very self-effacing in her book is also apparently quite self-effacing in real life and willing to admit that she's wrong. So I'm willing to recommend this book still. I really got a lot out of it. And she seems like a person who's willing to learn things. And that's it's really, commendable. Yeah, it's it's like so much. Uh, so I just read this great interview um, with uh, Violent J from Insane Clown Posse. Yes, I read people. this too. You saw that yes. too? Yeah. And he talks about how like he was like, we're so homophobic back in the day. Yeah. And these days, and I'm going to quote him, he says that his daughter says like, why did you say this? And he's like, because your dad was a fool. And like when people ask you, why did your dad say this? Say it's because he's a fool and he's not one anymore. And that's it. And I think like so often these days, this is a bit of a tangent, but so often these days, like we we like tend to just think of people as like like uh, uh, stone tablets that can never change. And it Canonized, is really cool. perhaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really cool when people like go out and say, because all of us like have said shitty things or like or said things we regret. Something. Or like, yeah, said or something didn't ignorant. know and, like, We're ignorant. Yep. Yeah. It's so important to like be able to give people the, the time and space and slack to educate themselves and not be like, you're a shitty person, like goodbye. And then when you have people on the other side of things where it's like Harry Potter and it's like a clear pattern of refusing to listen or change or acknowledge your Mm -hmm. flaws and problems with what you're saying and doing then it's like okay man well (laughs) then you have to kind of take action and like decide what you're gonna do with that but yeah that's really cool story because it's so much like okay this person made a mistake and even if it was recent they can still change Mm -hmm. I feel pretty strongly about like giving people chances when when it comes to stuff like that if they if they're willing to learn and change, yeah, then yeah, definitely. yeah, that's the thing. You can't keep making the same mistake and then expect people to forgive you every time. But like, if you're actually willing to to learn and change, yeah, yeah, a good example of a call in as well, kind of the ultimate yeah, call in. I know, is having your son <laughs> mm-hmm. be like, "I love you, mom," but um, you're you're off but, on this one, um, and we need mm-hmm, to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a cool thing about having kids, and like something I think <laughs> yeah, about a lot. Also as on a Twitter, parent. and are like, "Mom, don't tweet this." It's really the reason <laughs> to have kids is so they'll point out your bigotry in thirty. Years. Well, no, I was going to say is like something something that's cool about kids is like getting to learn yes, from them one day and like they bring this perspective yep. to the world that you can yep. be like, oh, man, you can teach me all these things one day. But mm-hmm. yeah, I digress. Hopefully, hopefully you learn to see your kids as someone who can teach you. I feel like a lot. Not all parents always. Yeah, do. but it's a very good quality. And I was, I was very yes. heartened by that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that definitely speaks well of her. I haven't read that book, but that sounds wonderful. Yes, I I have been meaning to get it, so you reminded me to. You should get it. Nice. Get it's a fun it. read. Yes, and check it out. It's in the canon. All right, let's keep going. Movies. We're on to the the big ones. Movies and video games. These are the ones that everyone argues about their canons all the time. At least on video game and podcasts, because that's a lot of what we talk about. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's. Uh, Let's do movies. Let's go, Jason. What's your movie canon? Yeah, so it's funny. I feel much much more strongly about TV shows than I do about movies. As you guys both know, I'm way mm-hmm. more into TV than I am into movies. So like, yeah. I don't feel super strongly. Movies about, perfect. Like, I know you yeah. said we all have good taste, but you know, <laughs> um, I don't have like a movie that is like this movie is my all time. Like this speaks to me and means everything to me. And in fact, some of the movies that I like used to love are very pro- deeply problematic in <laughs> retrospect. Um, <laughs> Like uh, the South Park movie or like Airplane, like movies that I grew up like watching over and over again. Um, but I will say that my canon movie is the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. Or if you want to just pick one, I guess you could pick the Fellowship of the Ring. But really, it's mm-hmm. like one giant movie. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is I love the books growing up and played like some of the old computer games and they were all crappy, but I lo- love the atmosphere. And so like seeing that come to fruition on film was mind boggling to me, um, even though I wasn't super young or anything thing as I think 15 or 14 when the first one came out on screen it was still like like the budget and the CGI it was all just like mind boggling and the scale still and the scope kind of and, is. Like, yeah still, still, still kind of is kind yeah of you is. watch this yeah. today and you're like holy crap like how did they do yeah. this mm-hmm. um, yeah it's incredible and I like ate up every single behind the scenes feature about like how they would film different sizes of rings and they had like eight oh, yeah. different types of rings <laughs> the and huge um, ring that those images uh-huh. are still amazing honestly of like the freaking huge prop ring it's hilarious yeah and also the character scales of like having the the yeah. little right, people stand-ins the for the hobbits, hobbits. and yeah. mm-hmm. there's so much good stuff to these movies also i have like very fond memories of like going to see them every christmas uh like just dis- like around mm-hmm. then december break um like seeing it with a bunch of family members and stuff like that or seeing it with a bunch of friends and um, yeah I, I also have very fond memories of in college with a buddy of mine we <laughs> did twice we did a marathon extended session sure, where we watched sure, all three sure. movies in mm-hmm. a row got super high ordered a bunch of pizza <laughs> just spent 12 hours like by the end of it your eyes are blurry your like head yeah, hurts yeah. you feel like you were just in like Mordor yeah. Um <laughs> If you think Return of the King, if you think the endings of Return of the King are like a fake out and like annoying watching it in theaters or watching it just like on its own, imagine after 12 hours, you're like, oh my God, this is not ending. When you marathon, did you... um watch the extended cuts or we the- did yes yeah, that's we what watched you every do. bonus scene even though it's grueling and why would you do that i too have experienced this yeah yes. same and um I, so i just started re-watching fellowship of the ring literally last night wow um, unrelated to this because i didn't know this was your pick but it was on hbo max and i was like just had an yeah, hour yeah, yeah. they like released them in like, 4k so a lot of people are re-watching them yeah, yeah i was like i'm just gonna watch this and i started it and i had read an article i think Maybe by one of your colleagues or by a freelancer on Polygon that was like, yeah, it's because we're the, doing a Lord of the Rings year where we write about it every single week on Wednesdays. Just as an aside, <laughs> so funny. yeah, you probably read it at Polygon. It's great fun. No, I definitely did read it at Polygon. I just wasn't sure that it was a freelancer or a staff a staffer, mm-hmm. but it was about how the extended editions aren't. Peter Jackson has been like, you know, those are just for fun, but like the real versions of these movies is not the extended edition it's the theatrical cut and i'm mm-hmm. so used to the extended editions now because i own them on dvd just like everybody in those little books that you yep. put on your, on your yep. the, the green red blue and the two-sided disc you have to flip it around and it's yeah. like um, now flip so, the disc yeah 
I love those and know them really well, but I started watching just the regular theatrical cut and it is better. Like it's totally better. It starts so much better. Like the beginning isn't the whole long on Hobbits thing, mm-hmm. which is in the, and I, it's cute and all, but like it was, I, it took me back to the theater seeing it for the first time where it just begins with Galadriel being like, it's such an unassuming beginning. Like she's like much has like much time has passed and there are a few who remember. And it's just like the Lord of the Rings just comes into focus and it's, the shit like the beginning is awesome like of the <laughs> theatrical cut and then just like there's just a lot of little stuff I was noticing they cut out like when um what's his name Isildur has the huge ring that's what you were making me think of it when he's like holding the humongous ring and it shrinks and then he's running around his neck like when they get attacked in the extended cut it's like he jumps into the water and then you see the orcs see him in the water and they like shoot their bows and then he's you see his dead body with arrows. But in the original version, you just it's like they get attacked and then it just cuts to him in the water with arrows sticking out of him. And it's like it's kind of really interesting to watch that now. I would recommend anyone who hearing Jason talk about the movie is like making you want to watch him again, which like I always am down to watch these. Try watching the original theatrical cuts, especially if you've watched the director's cuts a lot, because it's kind of like reading a like edited work, like seeing a mm. good editor at mm. work. You're like, uh-huh. oh, cool. That was like a five second thing that I remember that isn't there now. And that's true. They did not need to show that. And it's better without it. Like it's a, Interesting. just tighter things. So it was. Does the HBO version have both? Have both versions? Can I don't you watch either. No, sometimes HBO does do that where they have like I watched the director's cut of um, actually Maddie's pick. <laughs> I won't spoil. <laughs> um, just recently, and they had both, so they might, but I didn't check, so Got I'm not me. sure. All right, well, I'm going to go. Um, my pick is a 1984 movie called Ghostbusters. That is an amazing movie that I love, and is a movie that was like my favorite movie ever as a child, and. Gets me to something I think about this endeavor of ours on this episode I think is sort of interesting, which is that if we're picking formative movies, it's so easy to always pick things from our childhood because that was when we were forming. And so, (laughs) you know, we we, a lot of the things that we saw as kids informed who we are to a sort of outsized extent where so there are a lot of movies that i have seen since Ghostbusters that are better films like they're, you know, that have sort of informed my take on like what it can be to use this whole medium to tell stories but Ghostbusters is so special to me and I totally think that it still does hold up like there are things about it that I guess don't work like whatever but it mostly works um and it's so weird it's so weird that that movie was as successful as it was that it was a phenomenon that like kids like me were obsessed with spawn merchandise not just obsession it was like oh, a I mean, whole, like fully yeah. there's a scene at the end of the movie if you remember where they have ghostbusters t-shirts where everybody mm-hmm. is like celebrating ecto-1 and they're holding up those blue ghostbusters logo t-shirts and like then you could buy those in real life which is I don't know. Like, there are some really great behind-the-scenes stories on this movie. It went through all these crazy rewrites. It was initially in outer space because Dan Aykroyd had written it. Because, you know, Dan Aykroyd is kind of an infamous kook. Yeah. He's really into, like, Tobin's spirit guide and all of this stuff. And, like, then they kind of were like, no, 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 we got to rework it. And uh, he he and I think Ivan Reitman co-wrote it. And I know Harold Ramis kind of brought it down to earth and made it mm-hmm. into this sort of small business starting a 
business like scientists doing stuff in New York. And then it turns into this kind of New York movie, which it was not originally intended to be. And then they weren't going to have uh, Bill Murray in it for a long time. I think it was going to be John Belushi. The, the, the behind the scenes of the movie is fascinating because it could have been eight different movies, all of which would not have been Ghostbusters and mm. wouldn't have had this weird special magic that that movie, like its soundtrack, its look, the 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 special effects, the way that they look, the fact that it's scary is such a big thing for me. I was so scared of this movie as a kid because there's a couple scenes. The scene where the terror dog comes out of the chair and grabs Dana and like yeah. takes her is so scary. Or like the um, the librarian is scary. Yeah, the librarian whole section is pretty spooky. Friggin' spooky. And yeah. so it's just got this frequency that it's at of like, it's really funny. It's still quotable. The there are so many lines from that movie that are just hilarious still that I quote all the time about like roasting in the belly of the slur and like, you know, back off man, I'm a scientist. There is no, there is no Dana. Only there Zool. is no Dana, only Zool. I've only seen this movie once in my twenties. So it's so funny that to me that you picked this movie. Well, Maddie, I highly recommend rewatching it. You would enjoy it. I don't know if I would, but, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not, I but I, well, maybe, maybe I not. do wish I'd seen it as a child. I feel like I would have such a different relationship to it. And, and I felt that way when I was watching it like way into my 20s like very late in life that Mm -hmm. I was like this is not a movie for someone to watch when they're 27 like it just isn't it's just not oh I don't agree oh I don't agree but that's fine um I I think it really (laughs) I I would be curious to hear from listeners what they think of this I think it really holds up um yeah I mean I'd, I'd love to hear what people think but yeah I I love this movie the um DVD commentary on it is fantastic. It's just like a weird movie that should not be as good as it is, and yet somehow it is. And it also just was I it was adored by me as a child. I would make my own proton pack and go to the library to bust ghosts. Um, the librarians knew who I was. I just like loved everything about it. <laughs> well, there it. were ghosts at the library. You knew that much. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that was in there. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm I not, I'm not saying toys, it's bad Kirk. for the record. I just I just feel like it's a children's movie. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I, I wish I could have had that experience, but also I would have been freaking terrified of it. So maybe it's for the best. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a thing I like about it. And just that it's like a world, the idea of the magic in this world, like there are ghosts, there is this other, there are these other dimensions, like in the real world. There, you could go to the library and like the spirit could be there. Like it's just like a cool thing for it to explore. That's scary, but not scary in the way that like Poltergeist is like legitimately a horror movie. And mm-hmm. I think that was like very enticing for me as a child. And I still, I still think it's kind of a cool thing that I have never quite seen replicated. Uh, the way they they tell that story. So that's me. So Maddie, you have a great pick here. What's uh, what's your movie? I do. I picked Alien from 1979. I I also really thought about picking some movies from my childhood which Alien is not I mean there are plenty Mm -hmm. of movies that I like watched over and over as a kid or as a teenager that I I could have chosen here but Alien is another example of something like Murder She Wrote for me where I watched in my 20s and then it was very formative in how I saw media because it's just it's a well-organized movie and somehow I didn't Mm -hmm. have it spoiled for me like there's sort of like a some twist as to who's behind it all like when they, they first let the alien into the ship when you're watching it for the first time you're like how is this all happening? Like, why are people doing mm-hmm. all of this? And there is sort of a, a twist in in terms of why it's happening the way that it is that I didn't know and got to be surprised by, got to experience all the jump scares the first time around, and then on watching it subsequent times, got to appreciate how well-crafted they are and just the, the stakes being elevated. And just as somebody who writes about video games, I, I think it's a pretty interesting movie to analyze from well, that Well, Metroid would too. not exist oh, without yeah. it. Of, of course, yeah. I mean, it influenced Metroid, which is... Uh, 
a video game franchise I like, and I'll say no more on the topic for now. Um, so yeah, I, I just, it's a movie I still think about a lot. I recommend it to people if they've never seen it. I think it not only holds up, but also has influenced a lot of other movies. So it's kind of a cheat pick because I feel like it's pretty canonical for most people, but it's also part of my personal canon in the sense that I just happen to like it. I think Sigourney Weaver's cool in it. I think she does a good yeah, job. Yeah, was Alien was Alien the first movie to really have like a female superstar action hero? It might not be way? the first, well, but it's certainly notable. I mean, it's certainly yeah. like of an early contender for that arena. I would say that like and I think that it's interesting actually to consider her as a superstar action hero because she's not that in Alien. Mm. Like it's kind of interesting actually. It's funny, I didn't think about this Maddie, but there's a direct line between your movie and my movie, uh-huh. and that is that Sigourney Weaver became a star because of Alien, and then five years later, she was in Ghostbusters. And which and she's like, wonderful in, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Definitely. Um, a different role, but she gets to have some of the... She just has such a great energy. She has that kind of steel to her that just makes her so cool on screen. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Alien is that Ripley is just a cast member. So I rewatched this movie. I've watched it a few times now. This is an amazing movie. I agree that it holds up weirdly well... Or in an unu- it holds up in an unusual way, and that's because the series changed so much, and horror movies and sci-fi changed so much, and now have kind of wheeled back around in some ways to where the first Alien was. So watching it now, it feels modern in some ways. Like it yeah. feels, which is really cool. She's just like a crew member in that movie. Like she's not even. So is it pro- not until Aliens that becomes? Yeah, she Aliens becomes, like, is the much era? more okay. the bombastic. Aliens action, is the movie. Pow, pow. Yes, Aliens is. Stay away from her, you bitch. That's the movie where she's in the power loader fighting the queen alien. Like, that's the James Cameron movie, which Alien 1 is uh, Ripley Scott. Wait, Ridley Scott. (laughs) Her name is Ellen Ripley. Mm -hmm. Ellen Ridley and Ripley Scott. And the Metroid enemy is named Ridley. Yes. Yes. Right. God. Right. (laughs) So anyways, um, it's it's a sweet movie. Um, And then I had watched it to review uh, Alien Isolation, the Mm. game, which have you ever played that, Mandy? A little bit, but it's too scary. (laughs) It's pretty (laughs) scary. scary for me <laughs> yeah it's a scary one um if you like alien it's kind of a f- fun but it i would never have finished it if i hadn't reviewed it and i still don't fully understand why i reviewed it because like what <laughs> was i thinking torture torturing yourself i had to finish the whole game and it's like really scary and hard <laughs> but i did yeah alien i mean it's a fascinating movie for a lot of reasons but i will say um when i was in nyu in a screenwriting class um one class or another we had to like read like four perfect scripts and alien was one of them or scripts that like were considered like some of the greatest of all time and alien was one of them. So it's got a very like, very, I can see uh, that. Yeah. It's a very film class structure. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, structured in a, it's like a meticulously perfectly structured movie in a lot of ways. That's so Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Well, Time for the big kahuna, the the thing that we all talk about for the a living. entree, the piece de la resistance. I guess this is maybe dessert because we talk about video games so much that it's like this is right. just the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. We rank video games all the time, and now we're gonna each pick our canon video That's games. True. So, uh, Jason, you're first, man. What do you got? Yeah. So again, this is a game that had the biggest influence on me. Not the not my favorite game ever, and certainly not the best game ever. This <laughs> is, of course, Final Fantasy. I think people were waiting for me to add like a number to the end of that, but no, Final Fantasy on the NES, um, the original Final Fantasy. And this game has aged incredibly poorly. It is basically unplayable today unless you play like a more modern version um, because of all these quirks that just make it very difficult to play today. But 
back in the day, it was like one of my first real games. Um, and I just spent so much time playing it and thinking about it and thinking about everything around it. Like I would read through the strategy guide and like, um, uh, memorize the names of all the weapons and like go to sleep thinking about like new <laughs> weapons I would create and add to the game mm-hmm. and like write fan fiction stories. And but like, this is five-year-old fan fiction stories. So it would be like incomprehensible so it'd be, like, now. Really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, it would be fantastic. Now. It would be like secretly genius. <laughs> um, but I would have this little like black and white notebook and I would be writing all this stuff about final fantasy and like creating this, uh, imagining this world for myself. Like, um, and yeah, it just influenced everything about, about my life like not only my video games and I was pretty much only into JRPGs for a very long time for the whole Super Nintendo and like PlayStation eras um, but also just like the types of books I read which was a lot of fantasy and like the types of things that pretty much everything I was into was just influenced by this one game that just like kind of took over my life and the funny thing is I could never get past like the first three hours of it like that's all I played for years and years of my life like I would get up to this point anyone who's played this knows what I'm talking about I would get up to the marsh cave and I would just struggle over and over again because these games were so most NES games were super tough this game especially was tough because so much of it was about resource management and like you had a very limited number of healing items and healing spells and if you didn't play really really carefully and strategically Mm -hmm. it was impossible to beat some of the dungeons and March Cave was like the first real dungeon that presented this challenge and as a kid I know I was four or five years old playing this game I had no idea what I was doing or like what strategy was even Um, so I would just play it and I would just die over and over again and I would just start (laughs) new games and play over and over again and just play through those first few hours and memorize the music and just goof around and like I didn't care I was a kid I didn't care that I wasn't beating it um Eventually, I played enough, like when I was a little older, maybe like six, seven, I played enough to the point that I actually could get through most of the game. Um, never really beat it, but like got through a good chunk of it. But but mm-hmm. as a kid, it, none of that really matters to you. It's just like imagining this world in your head. And yeah, this game probably had more of an influence on my life than anything else ever, like any TV show, movie, whatever. Um, so yeah, Final Fantasy means a lot nice. to me, nice. as you guys yeah. know. That's yes, cool. yes. That's cool, though, about the original. All right, my turn. Um, my pick is Half-Life, mm. the first Half-Life from 1998, which I sometimes go back and forth on whether I should have picked the first Half-Life to be the game that mm. we all play through this year instead of Half-Life 2. I think I made the right call just because Half-Life 2 is like, whatever, it's really good too. Half-Life, though, is special, and it would have been fun to have had you both have also played it just to be able to talk about it because it's... It is an important game in video game history. It's a really interesting game from like a design standpoint and like all the games that have copied it ever since. It was the first game to do so many things that it did. But really, it's just it was the first video game that ever like really blew my mind, like that made me have the kind of feeling you're talking about, Jason, the feeling of like, holy shit, I'm seeing something that I didn't know could exist that is so exciting and that like I just want to experience it and like be inside of it. So I am. Um, but you were a lot older when you played this, right? Well, I was. So, yeah, I was, was 18 when this game came out. 18. Okay. Um, so I was like, I think it was my senior year of high school. And um, I the reason that I describe it that way is like I can't I really want to be inside this world and play it is that I didn't actually play this game the first time that I saw it. My friend Sam 
who um is uh he, he like had multiple PCs at his house for some reason maybe because of his dad's work I can't remember but our swim team went over there and we had a kind of a like not a sleepover but like a party at his house where we were like hanging out and this was like a very you know swim team party so we're not drinking alcohol or anything this is very like a very like <laughs> squeaky um, clean party squeaky mm-hmm. clean party and like what we were mainly doing was we were playing i think it was this game called sin which is like a first person shooter kind of unreal style like really just 90s game and then he had this game called half-life which i had knew about because i think i'd kind of read some pc gamer at the time but didn't really know about and he just started playing it and we all just watched and like the experience of this game is half-life to anyone who hasn't played it just very briefly it's like you or this researcher in a lab and the game begins and you go down, down, down into the lab. You take this tram that just goes forever and you're like going deeper and deeper and deeper and you're all in first person. The whole game takes place without breaking first person, any of it, which had never happened before and was like mind blowing. And you go and then you're finally like in this big laboratory and you do this experiment and you like rip a hole in in reality and like dimensions and there's this alien invasion you get knocked out, you wake up, and you're in the very bottom of this huge government facility, and it's just destroyed, and there's, like, monsters and zombies and aliens everywhere, and you need to get out. And, like, then the whole game is just you going through this amazing, increasingly complicated complex trying to get out. And watching the first few hours of that game, which is, like, disaster movie that you're inside of, and there's, like, broken stuff, and the graphics were amazing for the time, and the lights, and, like, flashing red lights, and darkness, and zombies, and you get this crowbar, and you're kind of watching Sam play this game. I was just, like, so excited, like, just watching someone (laughs) play a game, and it was the first time I'd ever felt that way. I was like, I can't believe this. Like, you know, you go to this elevator at this one point, and you press the button, and then the elevator just falls, and there's a scientist inside of it, and he's like, ah! and he just falls down and it's like a fake out you have to go then climb into the shaft there's all kinds or you'll look into an office and see a scientist get like pulled into a vent by like a monster and it's like if you didn't look over there you wouldn't have seen it and that was just all totally new and it was so exciting and cool and like it still holds up. There's that amazing the Black Mesa remake that I've talked about on the show before that like is a great way to experience the same story even though it's modernized and different. But the original game is super worth playing too just as this like fascinating arc, um, artifact. Like it it rules. It, it was the first game that made me just so excited about video games and looking back on it now I had no idea then that I would like video games would be such a major part of my life. Um, I just <laughs> would never have guessed. But that was the moment where the they were they were exciting enough to me that it actually would make sense later that they would be this major part of my life that I would be like oh my god I love this what is this, this is so cool I just want more and more and more and to talk about this and think about this and and experience this more so Half Life is my pick That's it's a stuff. great game and uh, one day maybe the two of you will play it all right Maddie what's your pick. <laughs> All right. So my pick is actually Metroid Prime Corruption, which is not considered the best Metroid game by, I think, anyone. So this is much more of a personal canon pick. This is your your Metroid hipster pick. It kind of is, yeah. (laughs) It's called Metroid Prime 3 Corruption, right? Yes, you're right. It's the third Metroid Prime. I should clarify that. Yeah. So, and it came out in 2007. So this was actually the first Metroid game that I ever played because I played the prime games out of order Mm. and did everything in life out of order. And I think I played this when I was 21, 22, something like that. So much older than the two of you described for your games. So my situation was only a couple years. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? I was, I was a person. I had had opinions were were formed in my brain. 
Yes. Wasn't a feminist at the time. I was playing, I'd played a bunch of fighting games, a bunch of Counter-Strike, a bunch of Gears of War. These are all games I almost picked for this that were much more formative, teen, jock, maddie picks. I, I was mm-hmm. too cool for school and I didn't have female friends, etc. And so then I had this horrible breakup um, and I was living alone. Uh, I was still in college. I was an intern at the Phoenix. I described on our other beans talk about how I was going to work a lot at the Phoenix during this time period because I was Mm -hmm. so depressed. But when I wasn't Mm -hmm. at work, I was playing video games because, you know, what else are you going to do with your life? So (laughs) this was one of the games that I got at the time. And I was also just playing single player games. Like before this point, I played a lot of competitive multiplayer games and I I'd played some single player games in my life, but I didn't really think of myself as a single player gamer. I thought about games as being competitive, hardcore experiences where you're like refining your skills over time. Mm-hmm. And Metroid Prime 3 Corruption is not that at all. It's an exploratory game. You are a woman alone in space. A lot of the enemies that Samus fights, the main enemy she fights in this is Dark Samus, who's like, if energy itself could <laughs> form an opponent to Samus, that opponent would be Samus. It would be shaped like Samus and be as strong as Samus. And I really got attached to the idea of that, even though the game doesn't signpost that concept at all. Still, but like, yeah. it's a part of of that. And there's a lot of times. As a when, stolen from Zelda, but yeah. <laughs> kind of. But I mean, there's, it happens a lot in Metroid as well. Like Samus fights various versions of herself pretty often it's a cool concept yeah i mean it's also like how much other sci-fi and fantasy is that in like you have to fight a dark version of yourself yeah come on it's like a metaphor for your dark thoughts or self-hatred exactly exactly and so like in this time period it it helped me with with that line of thinking but i was also just straight up like i had never really played a game that starred a female character before there weren't that many to come by Mm -hmm. in this time period and in 2007 it's pretty different now like the past 10 to 15 years or so is that's changed a lot. There's a lot more games about different kinds of people, but like that wasn't necessarily true back then. And so, yeah, that was, it was formative for me in that way as well, because I was just like, huh, a game could be about somebody who reminds me of myself and what would that mean? And then I think that was also just the start of me thinking about games and myself in a different way. And it helped my writing a lot and also helped me like figure out what kind of person I wanted to be so so wait did you go back and play other Metroid games after so this was the first one I played but I fell in love with it and then I played the other Metroid Primes next I had a Gamefly subscription so I got them in the mail Um, wow that's cool yeah well that was like the way you could get like old game sure yeah um so that was what I did and then I I slowly but surely played all the other ones um I played the 2d ones later which I think people find very strange like if I was gonna pick the canon Metroid pick I'd probably pick Super Metroid because I feel like it's such a well-made game it's like the equivalent yeah for some reason I thought you grew up with that game but no you did not I didn't I didn't but I could have but I did. That's cool. I always like, I don't know, I've come backwards into a lot of things like that. I feel like mm-hmm. it gives you an interesting perspective. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Yeah. And like the reason I started with it at that time was simply because 2007 was when I was alone and was like, mm-hmm. I want to play a video game. And that was mm-hmm. when Metroid Prime 3 Corruption had just come out. So I was like, well, right. I'll play this new Metroid new game. Yeah, yeah. That's the new it's one. It's lucky. It's so funny. If you had, if this had all happened to you in 2010, your first game would be Other M. Oh, and God. You'd be like, what is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's Hopefully a good point. I would have not picked that. I don't know. Or maybe I would be one of those people 
who's an other M defender. They're out there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. They're out there like yeah. Star Wars prequels defenders. There are people That's out like there <laughs> who find things to like. There's a in an alternate in an alternate universe, there's another Maddie, another mm-hmm. M. I know. Who's, uh, another who's really into M. It's like, look, this was my first Metroid. Don't take this from me. There yeah. are people like that. I, you know, I, this yeah, is yeah. not a show. We're we're gonna wrap it up, but like there are actually some things in Other M that I think are really cool. I'll just I'll yeah, leave I'm, it there. Sure. Maybe we'll talk yeah. about it on some other future app. But yeah, we'll do a what's the deal that. with Metroid. I'm sure. Yeah, and no game sure. is irredeemable. Of course, I've never pl- I've never played it, so I couldn't say. But yeah, yeah, no game is irredeemable. I don't know. I played some irredeemable <laughs> games. Um, on the NES, there were some real, real. <laughs> there were some stinkers, I, I guess, back in yeah. the day. Well, this has been our canon. This is our, our at least our first round of canon. Maybe we'll Good do stuff. a canon. Maybe we'll add to our canon as we go. Should we? Should we just read through them all? Kirk, do you want to just read them all? Just yeah, so I'll read remember? them all down. Just as a refresher, we'll, we'll have them in the show notes as well. But here is uh, the triple-click canon picks for each of us. TV show. Jason's is The Simpsons. Kirk's is Avatar The Last Airbender. And Maddie's is Murder, She Wrote. Albums. Jason's is Blink-182's Enema of the State and Take Your Pants and Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Still a funny pun, I yeah. gotta say. What can I say? It's still good. Still, still makes me giggle. Kirk's is Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. And Maddie's is Nine Inch Nails's The Fragile. For books, Jason's is Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Mine is Miles Davis and Quincy Trope's Miles, the autobiography. And Maddie's is Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird. Our movie picks, Jason's uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mine is uh, Ivan Reitman's Ghostbusters. And Maddie's is Ridley Scott's Alien, starring Ellen Ripley. (laughs) Uh And for video games, Jason's is Final Fantasy, the Final Fantasy, the final one. Um, Mine is... uh, Half-Life, the first Half-Life, and Maddie's is Metroid Prime 3 Corruption. And those are our canon picks. That's it. We did, we did it. it. Hey, we Good did stuff. it. Hey, canons. Canons canonized. This was a fun process. All right. Well, thank you all for being members and helping support yeah, the show. Yeah, thanks everybody so much for being a member. We really appreciate it. And yeah, like we said, if you want to try to put together your own canon, and uh, if you're in the Triple Click Discord, or just email it to us, by all means, go ahead. It's a fun process. It is kind of challenging. It'll tell you some stuff about yourself. It's kind of a fun thing to do. So, uh, yeah. That'll do it for this uh, this Beans Talk. We'll be back next month with, with another one and, of course, back later this week with an episode of Triple Click. Until then, Maddie and Jason, I will see you next time. See ya. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. And if you're listening to this bonus episode, it means you're already a member. So thank you. We really appreciate your support. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod. Send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.